0: Um, What did you come up with? Tell me about Ramadan. Um, Just shout them out. Anything? What do you know about Ramadan? Fasting. fasting. Fasting, Yes. Fasting from what? Food and water. No water either. Okay. And also other pleasures like if you smoke or um, fasting, you're not allowed to have intercourse either. All right. So if you're married and you know, uh, it's a month of fasting for that as well. Okay. Uh, How long do you fast for? Daylight hours, yeah. Okay, so sunrise to sunset, and it's for about a month. Okay, so um, it's 29 or 30 days, depending on the moon. So it's it's, it's the new moon, so it's either 29 or 30 days. Okay, anything else you know about Ramadan? How important is it to Muslims? It's necessary, necessary, yeah. It's actually one of the five pillars of Islam. So when you're talking about what is Islam about, Ramadan is right at the center of what it means to be a Muslim. It's the one that they do... Uh, every Muslim does, apart from daily prayer, this is the one time in the year they do it, and every Muslim is expected to, unless you're ill or pregnant or um, really young or really old or traveling. Every Muslim is supposed to observe Ramadan. Anything else you know about Ramadan? Yeah, and then you celebrate afterwards, Eid. Um, okay, but even also every night after sun sunset, you actually have a big buffet because everyone's um, celebrating. So there's... Um, Uh, At Lakemba, if you know about it, every night there was like street food and street markets because the end of um, the days of Ramadan, uh, everyone celebrates together. Anything else you know about Ramadan? Here's some other facts if you didn't know. Um, In the Northern Hemisphere, it's obviously harder (laughs) because we have shorter daylight in winter, they have it in summer. So in some countries, they actually adjust the clock to shorten the days, so like Egypt. It actually affects economies in Muslim countries. Did you know that? Inflation goes up in the month of Ramadan. You economic people can tell me why that is. Somehow it affects it. Um, what is Ramadan for? It's actually, as I said, it's one of the pillars of Islam. It's really essential for Muslims. It's, uh, it's to help you grow spiritually. It's to clear your mind and body. Um, and here's a fact, and this is related to what we're talking about today on Compassion Sunday... Ramadan is actually linked very closely with uh, the poor because it's during the month of Ramadan that as you fast, you're supposed to be thinking about the needs of others. And during the month of Ramadan, um, charitable giving for Muslims is not a requirement. There's no tithe, but they are encouraged to give. And during the month of Ramadan is when a lot of the charities and a lot of the giving happens. Okay, But it's part of the system of Ramadan. It's part of what it means to be a Muslim, what it means to earn merit before Allah. And that's why they give to the poor as well. OK, why are we talk about Ramadan is not just because it's finished, but because if you ask the question and flipped it on Christians, and you ask um, Jesus, "What is the most essential element of Christianity?" what would be the answer? And how is that essential element also related to the poor and the needy? Because today we're actually looking at a passage where Jesus gets asked that very question. Right? What is essentially at the heart of being a Christian or a follower of Jesus? Or, or the man asks Jesus, how do I get eternal life? Really, that's the question. And Jesus will give him an answer that points to what is essentially at the heart of being a Christian. And it also has to do with how we view the poor, how we think about mercy ministries, how we think about work like compassion, but also broader than that. Now, it seems like they're in the same direction. Ramadans at the, the, the heart of Islam has to do with the poor. Jesus answers the heart of Christianity has to do with the poor, but you actually find out that how it arrives at loving and caring for the poor is motivated completely differently. And that's going to be really uh, what we're going to be talking about today as we think about Compassion Sunday. So let me pray and let's get into the passage. Um, Lord Jesus, help us to hear, to meet you, to read, and to grow in our understanding of you, what it means to love God and love our neighbors. And what does that have to do with what is at the heart of following you? We pray that as a result of this, we would actually be able to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, as impossible and difficult as it might sound. And we pray that that might extend to people in a lot less fortunate places than us around the world. In your name we pray. Amen. You need to keep your Bibles open. Um, And yes, as Derek said, we actually have a box of those uh, NIV Bibles. Um, Anytime you come to church and you prefer paper, just grab one on the way in and just pop it back in the box on the way out. And if you don't have a Bible at home, keep it. It's yours, all right? Free. There you go. Okay, a few um, points on the outline. You can follow as I go along. Um, let's go. Uh, verse 25, let me read the first few verses again. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So that's the question. What is at the heart, right, of, 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 of Christianity? Jesus says, "What is written in the law? How do you read it?" He answered, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself." You've answered correctly. Jesus replied, "Do this and you will live." Now, I'll come back to that little puzzling bit at the end. Because if you read that earlier or if you've seen that before, "Do this and you will live," it might make you think, "Hang on, is Jesus saying that I can earn my way to heaven?" that if I manage to love God and love my neighbor in a way that's good enough that I can merit my way to heaven. Is that what Jesus is saying? Do this and you will live. I'll come back to that in a moment. But what we want to, of course, notice is that the man's answer is completely right. If you want to look at the heart and soul of what it means to obey God, those two commandments are it, right? Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, Jesus says in another place, we won't look at our Matthew 22. Jesus says, all Of the law and the prophets, in other words, all of the Old Testament, hang on these two commandments. That's how important these are. Someone once calculated, I don't know how they calculate this, but they went through and calculated 600 plus laws. right? 623 or something like that. 600 plus laws in the Old Testament that applied to the ordinary Jew. 600 plus laws. And Jesus is saying all of those 600 laws boil down to just two: love God. Love your neighbors. That's how important these two things are. Now, back to Luke 10, Jesus says, yes, that's correct. But you see, this expert in the law, wasn't, that wasn't enough for him. And, and it's because he's motivated, we read in the first verse, that he's motivated, what? To test Jesus. He's not really sincere. He wants to know if Jesus is legit. Right? He doesn't want Jesus to just tell him something he already knows. He came up with that answer after all. In fact, a couple of centuries even before Jesus walked on the scene, Jewish rabbis had already come to that conclusion, right, that these big two really summarize everything else. It's not insightful enough. So the guy comes back and he prods further, and he says to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Now, why does he ask about that one? He doesn't ask anything about loving God with all your heart. He asks, who is my neighbor? pretty obvious isn't it i mean loving god is hard to do with all your heart soul and mind but at least we know who god is as in there's only one god right for jews for christians one god i'm to love him with everything i have that's simple enough but the second one well that's a harder one because who is my neighbor yeah i mean who is your neighbor think about it because how how you answer that question will very much determine how you fulfill loving your neighbor as yourself so is my neighbor just the people who actually live in proximity to me, on my street, right, across the fence, maybe across three fences, backyard, yeah, okay, but people around me, is that my neighbor, or is my neighbor, you know, um, your, your relatives, your blood relations, but if it's your blood relations, how far removed do you calculate, some of you come from enormous families, don't you, right, you're probably like unknowingly related to the person next to you, and you didn't even know you were related, because you're like both Vietnamese, and somehow you're all related, right, I find out I'm related to people all the time that I didn't know I was related to, okay? Because our families are like that. Is that my neighbor? Or is it just the people you have interaction with? So if you come across them at schools, uni, um, work. But what happens when you move schools or move jobs? Are they still your neighbor? And, and are, are your neighbor, do you know your neighbors include people that, like for example, people you see on the streets, the homeless, the beggars, are they my neighbors? They don't have anything to do with me. I don't have any other interaction with them. I just walk past them. But if they also are included in my neighbors, does that mean that I'm disobeying God? If I just walk past them and not show them any compassion. Do you see what I mean? How you answer the who is my neighbor question is really, really important. So he turns the question on Jesus and Jesus doesn't give him a straight answer. He tells this famous parable. So let's go to the parable. Now, you probably have heard it before and we just read it, so I won't go through it in detail. Let me touch on four things about the parable, four things. There's a way that Jesus tells this story, and it's a, such a famous story, right? And it's, it's, it's so masterfully told. Jesus highlights four things. Number one, he highlights how desperately, uh, desperate plight, okay, the desperate situation of the traveler, of the guy who gets beaten up. See, every Jewish person knew the dangers of traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho or Jericho to Jerusalem. It's only 17 miles, not very long, about 30Ks, but it's known to be very dangerous. People get ambushed, they get attacked, they get robbed all the time. Think Cabra Matter in the 90s, (laughs) right? Nelson's like, oh yeah, (laughs) I lived through that. I was a kid in Cabra. Cabra in the 90s, you you know, your parents don't let you wander the streets of Cabra in the 90s, okay? It's just dangerous. Um, It's safe now, so go to Cabra. The man is robbed, okay, and he's beaten, and we're told he's been to an inch of his life. He's half dead, half alive, half dead, which means he's completely unable to help himself. So he is in a desperate, desperate situation. The second thing that Jesus highlights is just how Jewish the first two passers-by are. Not just any Jews, a priest and a Levite, right? One was a full-time clergy who served at the temple. The other person was a lay person probably, did another job, but he belonged to that special tribe, and we looked at in numbers, the Levite tribe, who alone of the 12 tribes could serve at the temple. You want to put it in modern church terms, it would be like a church minister and a church elder. That's how special these two guys were. They were not just Jews, but really important people in the Jewish community. So he highlights that. The third thing he highlights, of course, is how differently they behaved compared with the Samaritan. Now they were traveling along the same road, Jesus says, as the man who gets beaten up. And they were traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now that's an important detail, that they were going that direction, not the other direction. I'll tell you why. If they were going from Jericho to Jerusalem, given that they're a priest and Levite, they were probably going to the temple. And if you're going to the temple, you've got to make sure you don't become ceremonially unclean, because you can't then serve at the temple. Now, if this guy was lying in a ditch half dead, there's a chance that he could die. So it's a little bit more understandable if they saw a guy half dead thinking, well, if he dies, then I'm going to come in touch with a dead body. And for Jews, that's ceremonially unclean. And so I better not because I then can't serve at the temple. That would be the case if they were going from Jer- Jer- Jericho to Jerusalem, yeah? But they weren't. They were going the other direction. So if the guy does die on them, yes, they would still become ceremonially unclean, but, and it would be a huge inconvenience. But they don't have that excuse, do they? Okay, out of the way would have cost them, yes, but they weren't willing to pay that price. In fact, it says that they do what I don't know if you do this. You know, you're in a shopping strip uh, at, at, at uh, you know Pitt Street Mall or some some somewhere in Burwood or Hurstville or Bankstown, and you know those people with those folders, and they want to you know get you to. Not sponsored children, well, sometimes sponsored children, but you know, support some charity and they approach you and you see them at a distance and you're just like, I couldn't be bothered today having a conversation. What do you do? Right? I cross the road, go on the other side and just <laughs> purposely avoid them. Okay? Because sometimes you're just like, nah, I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm not, I know I'm not gonna do anything, right? I just don't wanna have that conversation. They're just too nice and friendly. I don't wanna break their hearts. Even though they get paid a lot of commission, do you know that? Anyway. So these guys do what I do and purposely take the long way around to avoid them. So this is, this is very clear that these guys just didn't want to do it, right? They, they, they didn't want to. They didn't want the trouble. They purposely avoid. And, of course, Jesus tells that to highlight how different it is to the actions of the guy who actually does something. You see 33, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled along, came to where the man was. And when he saw him... right, we firstly get an emotional response. He took pity on him. Don't mention pity at all with the first two. And then we see action from emotions. He did something. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. But it doesn't end there, right? Because the fourth thing Jesus points out is how much it cost him. His kind of care, how much it cost him. Next, he says, then he put the man on his own donkey. Look at the trouble he goes to. He brought him to an inn. And took care of him, personally took care of him. Well, the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, it's not just, here's the money, I'm not coming back. You looked after him, no, I'm going to come back. I will reimburse you for any extra expenses that you may have. Okay, you see the trouble he goes to. And it's meant to highlight the cost, because one denarius is one day's wages, Two denarii is two days' wages. Now, if you're a full-time worker, you you calculate how much that would cost you. What is the equivalent of two full days' wages for your salary for you? Okay, it's in the hundreds, right? It's a costly exercise. He doesn't just leave it there because he says, I'm coming back, and if there's extra expenses, spare no expenses, right? Here's a few hundred bucks just to cover it, but if there's more, I'm willing to reimburse you. Do you see how different he is to the first two? But note that it costs him something. But, of course, the importance of the Samaritan isn't just what he does, is it? We know Jesus tells a story because of who he is, who the Samaritan is. Now, do you know people, when it comes to movies, who you are a little embarrassed to sit next to in the movie because they can't help but express every emotion in the movies, does anyone know someone like that? I have a friend, and he can't go to. The <laughs> Someone's like, "That's me." Um, I have a friend who can't go to the movies with his wife because she will literally yell out, "Don't look behind that door!" In the middle of the cinema, because there's no filter with her brain and her mouth when it comes to emotions. You just okay. Um, you might know people like that. Well, in Jesus' story, when he gets to this bit and he goes. In verse 33, but a Samaritan, do you know what his Jewish audience would have done? They would have been like, "Ah!" you know those old black and white movies and you actually hear everything, it's like shock, horror. That would have been their reaction. They would have gasped. They would have been like, what is going on? Because if you didn't know, Samaritans were to Jews the most despised of races, right? They were from the same ancestry, originally the same religion, but Hundreds of years before Jesus, as the people of God uh, got split into exile and taken over by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, the Samaritans were Jews that became interbred and compromised with the non-Jews all around them. Not only were they compromised racially, they were compromised religiously. And so to Jews, they weren't even worth a spit that they wanted to spit on them. All right, it's a little bit like how in Harry Potter, the purebred wizards viewed the muggles, if you are a Harry Potter person. But it actually went the other way too. The Samaritans also hated the Jews. This was centuries of hostility, yeah? And in um, in, in philosophical terms, if you ever read um, stuff about, uh, you know, uh, philosophy and sociology, often um, the word uses the other, all right? So if you want to use that word, the other is the person that's most unlike you. You individually, you as a society, you as a group of people. In Jesus' parable, the Samaritan is the most other person you can think of, of a category of people. He is the other, the complete outsider, someone who's completely to the Jew, someone absolutely outside of their comfort zone, out of their association, out of their culture, out of the people they wanted to associate with. Samaritans were others to Jews in the same way as, um, I suppose, what Palestinians are to Jews today. Or what uh, Japanese were to Chinese. In world war ii yeah or what americans are to fundamentalist uh, muslims okay it's it's the complete other the enemy and that's what would have been shocking in the story as jesus goes to tell about the samaritan of all people who does these things because of all people he's the one who has mercy on the jew that would have been shock horror Remember, the question that Jesus is trying to answer with this parable is, who is my neighbor? And Jewish rabbis, Jewish teachers have debated that question for hundreds of years as well. Who is my neighbor? For good reason. If you figure out who your neighbor is, then you can know how to love them. Okay. They all had different opinions, but they at least reached some common ground. The Jewish rabbis reached at least this common ground, even though the details were different. They all, they all agreed that your neighbor was your fellow Jew. Right. Your neighbor was your fellow Jew which meant that for Jewish people, your neighbor did not include non-Jews, Gentiles, in other words. Your idol-worshipping Greeks, Romans, barbarians, those who had no regard for their God, those who weren't circumcised, those who ate pork and other forbidden fruit, they were not your neighbor. When God says, love your neighbor as yourself, it didn't include them. And you can bet it did not include Samaritans who in their minds were almost worse than Gentiles, yeah? And so when Jesus tells a story like this, it's trying to drive home the point your neighbor includes the most other other you can think of. Right? Who is right at the edge? Who is right beyond your comfort zone in terms of people you would feel like loving? And that's why Jesus will in other places say, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. And Jesus is the only one who says things like this. Because no one in his day, no one even today of other religions will go that far. So let me ask, who is the other when it comes to you individually, but particularly us as a group of people? I don't know if you remember after the Lint Cafe siege a few years ago in Sydney. Yeah, you guys remember that? And as the siege went on, you know, the flag of ISIS was, you know, put up and there was a lot of fear and hatred of, of Muslims and, and it, because it now come to our shores. But there was a hashtag that trended a day or so afterwards. Do you remember this hashtag? It was hashtag I'll ride with you. Do you remember that? Yeah? How it came about was, firstly, a woman, um, just after the Linn Cafe siege, she, she noticed uh, a Muslim woman on the train, and this Muslim woman was afraid, so she was beginning to take off her head covering. And this woman who's Australian, um, a non, non-Muslim, says to her, no, if you want to wear it, Wear it because I will walk with you. Now, that story spread, and then another woman took to Twitter and wrote this on Twitter. If you regularly take the bus between Coogee and Martin Place, and you wear religious attire, and you don't feel safe alone, I'll ride with you. And then the hashtag trend was, I'll ride with you, and people took it on. Now, that's not nearly as revolutionary as Jesus' story, but it sort of captures it, all right? At that time, in that place, and maybe still today, Muslims, to a lot of Australians, were the other. Who is my neighbor? Well, it's not just your friend family, is it? It's not just your friends. It's not just people you study and work with and interact with. It's not just people who live around you. It's not even people necessarily who you live in the same country as. As we think about the poor in third world countries, guess what? They're my neighbor too. As we think about kids in Indonesia who need sponsors and all around the world, they're my neighbor as well. I'm to love them. It includes also, let's go a bit further, The people you have least in common with, that you even look down on, that you fear, that you despise, that you hate, that hate you, that persecute you, the enemy, they are the other. They are your neighbors. And Jesus says, love them as much as you love yourself. Now, if that's not enough, there is more. Because there's a twist to this story, of course. Now, I want you to notice how Jesus did not tell this story. He didn't tell the story in this way. He didn't tell the story... With a Samaritan man beaten up, dying in a ditch. And the third man in the story being a Jewish man walking past and showing mercy. He didn't do it that way. He could have, but he didn't. Why do you think he did it the other way around? Well, obviously, one of the reasons, as I said, there's a big contrast, and it increases the contrast between the three characters when the first two were Jews and the third one was a Samaritan. Okay, The really Jewish guys don't do anything. But the person who obeys God is shock, horror, the person that everyone looks down on, the Samaritan. He actually loves his neighbor. So the contrast is much greater having it that way. But there's another reason. There's another reason why Jesus doesn't change the character so that it's Samaritan in the ditch and the Jew walking past. Now, remember who Jesus was telling the story to. He's speaking firstly, most directly to this expert in the law who is a Jew. But he's also li- also listening in you know on what his disciples and others who are all Jews. He's speaking to all Jewish men and women. Now you know in storytelling, especially in movies, how it works is often, you no, know, always there is a point of identification, right? And that's what I think is so wonderful about Pixar films. You've seen Incredibles too recently, if you haven't, I'm not giving anything away. But every character in that family is someone you can identify with or different people identify with different. whether it's the dad, right, who's kind of incompetent, trying to look after the kids, whether it's the mom who just wants a break from the kids and does something for herself, whether it's the angsty teenage girl, and we've got one of them at home, um, or, you know, the young guy, or even the baby's kind of cool, right? You have a point of identification, and that's your way into the story. One of the most amazing things years and years ago when The Lion King came out, you remember that movie, is I thought going to Lion King, I'm not going to like this movie, I can't identify with animals, and then you find yourself, you know, in this story through the eyes of Simba, because even animals done magically well in animation can give you a point of identification. That's how stories work. But we usually identify with who? The heroes, the good guy, the person you're rooting with, someone you have common with, the person you have sympathy with. Who are the listeners of Jesus going to be identifying with in this story? You see, we listen to this story, and we are happy to identify with the Samaritan, aren't we? Because he's the good guy in this story. He's the one who actually does something. In fact, we, we, have, we come from a culture, it's because we're a Christianized culture. We look down on the religious snobs. So we're not going to identify with the Levite and the priest. We, we don't like them. They're bad people. We identify with the Samaritan. But guess what? If you were Jesus' first listeners, and as Jesus is telling this story, you would not, in a million years, have read yourself in this story as the Samaritan. No way. No Jewish listener would have identified with him. He is a Samaritan. He's worse than a dog. He's worse than a Gentile. He's the enemy. And so you, you, if you're listening to this story and Jesus is telling you, and you're a Jew, you're in a bit of a crisis because you can't identify with the priest and the Levite because obviously they're baddies. You're not going to identify with a Samaritan because he's a Samaritan. So you've got one character left to identify with, right? Who is it? The guy who's dying in the ditch. And that is the twist. Jesus is trying to say something to his Jewish audience. The moral of the story is not first and foremost be like the Samaritan and love your enemies. It is. But that comes after you see yourself in the story as the guy in the ditch. You're the guy who needs help, you're dying. And you're going to need help so much because you can't help yourself that you'll even need to accept it from the most unlikely of places. See, Jesus is is telling us, you've got to first understand that to the only one who can help you and wants to help you, you are the enemy and you are the other. And you're going to need mercy from that person. You're going to need him to be a neighbor to you or you are dead. And even though He has no reason to, but because you're the guy in the ditch and you're dying, you're going to need Him to, in a very costly way, care for you and love you and tend to you. And only when you're in the ditch will you accept help from Him. That's Jesus' first point. In other words, remember this uh, lawyer was saying, this expert in law was asking Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer immediately makes you think, well, it's Jesus saying we can earn our way to eternal life. I can say save, be saved if I love my neighbor enough, I love God enough. Well, once you see the full picture and the twist in the story, you know that the answer is no. Jesus is not saying you can be saved by being good, by trying harder. And he's telling us two reasons why you can't. The first is, of course, as I said. Once you understand how broad this neighbor idea is that it's the complete other, it's even your enemy, then we're really talking about a standard of human love that is impossible, yeah It's sort of like when Jesus says to the rich young ruler, "Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and then come and follow me." And to the rich young ruler it was like, "That's impossible." And Jesus says it's actually more possible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for yeah Jesus is not saying this is possible. Jesus is saying, this is impossible. You can't love your neighbor as yourself if you understand neighbor in the way I yeah." It's not salvation by works. But the second is, of course, the story is not firstly about our love, but our need to be loved. That is the point of entry for you as a Jewish listener, if you're a Jewish listener. Your point of entry is the guy in the ditch, which means this parable is illustrating our need for grace. You see, if we're the guy in the ditch and we're desperate and dying, can't help ourselves, then we realize what Romans says when it says that when you were still powerless, God did something for you. Or Ephesians 2, when it says you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Dead people can't help themselves. And we have no right to expect anything from the one who is willing to have compassion and take pity on us. Because to him, we were completely the other. Do You, you all know that, right? The Bible says that to God, as we stand before a holy God, we are the other to him. We are the enemy. Romans 5 says, while you were still enemies, God took pity on you and did something for you. You've got to understand that. And when you understand that, you know what it is to be under grace. It's not merit. It's not works. It's grace because God does save us in spite of all that. He does come into the ditch to have compassion on us. He does go out of His way to be a neighbor to His enemies. Romans 5, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still, what, sinners, Christ died for us. See, Jesus is far from saying that we can be saved by good works. He's saying you can't be saved by your own efforts. You need to be saved. That's where it all starts. You need to be saved. And until you understand that, you don't know how to love your neighbor as yourself, okay? So before we go on to applying that, let me just ask you, have you done that? Some of you here, and we have people who come here, and they're not yet followers of Jesus, and we love having you, and it's a good place to find out more. But let me again gently but passionately urge you, if you haven't come to grasp and understand what it means to be loved like that, to have God reach out to save you, will it be today? Will you give your life to the Lord Jesus who came and at great cost to Himself, it wasn't just two denarii, He gave up His life for you to save you. Have you done that? Have you given your life to do that? If you want to find out more, great opportunities coming out of August. We have fresh happening again. Five weeks, supper, ask any questions you like, relax atmosphere. We're going to run into King's Grove this time, but it's not too far from here. Come along, bring your friends along, find out, think about what that means for you. But as I said before, you've got to understand that. You've got to understand what it means to be the guy in the ditch first before you can love your neighbor as you love yourself. Because loving your neighbors is one of those central to the Christian faith things. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, non-Christians know that loving your neighbor as yourself is the golden rule, right? And it comes from Jesus. Now, we find it hard, of course. And I'll give you three reasons why we'll find it hard and three reasons why actually we'll find it impossible unless we've understood God's love for us first. The first reason why we find it hard to love our neighbors is, of course, we're afraid. Yeah, fear. How do you love your neighbors as much as you love yourself? Like, we know what it is to love, even if you don't like yourself very much, you know what it is to care for yourself instinctively, prioritize your needs, honor yourself, you think about yourself reflexively, you're committed to yourself, you know. But now I'm to love my neighbor in the same way, with the same attention, with the same reflexive care that I offer myself. With the same commitment, that's hard. To do that, I'm going to have to give up stuff, yeah? And it's not just money. Money's easy in some sense. Time, energy, emotions. I'm afraid, and probably you are too, to love like that. Because what if you then get rejected? What if you're unappreciated? What if you're hurt? We've all tried to love people and been hurt in the response, yeah? We're afraid. That's one reason. The second one is It's overwhelming, isn't it? And once you think, okay, my neighbor is anyone. It includes third world country, poor kids in Indonesia, the beggar on the street. You just get overwhelmed. There's such a big task. There's so many people. So how how can I possibly do that? And you start feeling guilty. It's easy to feel paralyzed and you do very little or you, you get a rush of emotions and you feel guilty. You do something, but it doesn't last long. Overwhelmed. And the third one is, of course, Sometimes we just don't know how. We want to love. We just don't know how. And maybe consciously we don't know how. Like, I don't know if you've ever tried to care for someone with a particular long-term illness. We've talked a little bit about long-term mentally ill, depression, anxiety. It's not easy to know how to love them, even if you want to. Someone who's just lost a loved one. I've been in the situation where I've just not known what to say. And the poor is a classic, right? The, The guy on the street who's begging, like, Am I actually loving them by giving them some money? Is that a good thing? I don't know how to love them. Or sometimes unconsciously we don't know how to love because you've ever been in a situation you thought you were doing something good for someone, but then it actually doesn't help them. Now, that's a really important one because when it comes to poverty and mercy ministries, the history is of, of, of helping is, is littered with um, not knowing how to love sometimes. Uh, well meaning Western first world people do stuff in third world actually causes them more problems later on. Yeah. So wh- wh- I don't know what it is for you fear, overwhelming, don't know how. Let me come back to the work of compassion. The great thing about compassion is it, it, it does, I- it tackles the, the how. Okay. They've done it for decades. They've worked out how we can love children. It doesn't do everything. Right. There's different NGOs doing that kind of stuff. World Vision, which I've had some association with, does it differently. Compassion does it the way they do it, but it's a proven good way um, of actually helping individual children, and as you saw Hilda's story, if you talked to PT, um, we're compassion sponsors, probably a lot of you are as well, and it's a great way of actually knowing that this is genuine ways in which someone can be helped, not just poverty physically, but poverty spiritually, they come to know Jesus, it's a great work, so that's great, I want to, you know, encourage you on today to, if you, if you want to, or if you're thinking about it, get involved, sponsor. You can actually sponsor people together. So in the morning church at Kingsgrove, for seven years, the Sunday school, the kids, um, every week they bring like a gold coin, and we don't take their money to go into the church bucket. We take their money and we sponsor a child, and for seven years they've sponsored a child called Wisnu in Indonesia. That's how Compassion Sunday came about, all right? So they go together. So some people do that, pull their money. I think it's $48 a month or something like that. Anyway. Okay, But I want to say that, yeah, compassion does that. It takes the guesswork out of not knowing how. It also can help you with the feeling overwhelmed because you can't do everything, but you can do something. All right, and that's important. God is not calling you to do everything. He's calling you to do something. And if you want um, a solution to the overwhelming kind of fear, there's too many people, all that kind of stuff, here's a helpful thing I've remembered. You can help, right? a lot of people in a few ways, and you can help a few people in a lot of ways, right? You can help a lot of people in a few ways, a few people in a lot of ways. In other words, when it comes to helping um, those in third world countries, there's only a few, and because of the distance and so on, there's only a few ways I can help. I can give money, I can write to my sponsored children, right? It's helping, and that's okay. You don't have to, you don't have to do everything for them, you can help a few people in, uh, a lot of people in a few ways. But then there are going to be people that God puts in more proximity to you. Right? This is probably not the guy that you walk past at Winyard Station begging. This is the person you work next to, the actual neighbor sitting next to you. And again, it could be the other. It could be someone you don't naturally get along with. It could be someone you consider a bit of an enemy. But you can love them in many ways. Right? And God expects us to love the few in many ways and love the many in a few ways that may help the overwhelm question. But really at the heart and and right at the beginning is the fear. And that's something that we have to overcome. What's going to overcome the feeling that if I help, if I love to the standard that Jesus wants me to love, it's going to really cost me, and I'm afraid? Well, you're only going to solve that one by getting right at the heart of Christianity, right? You're only going to solve it when you understand God's love for you. Isn't that right? The solution to fear, 1 John says, perfect love drives out fear. Perfect love isn't found in me. Perfect love is found in how I'm loved by Jesus. Once you understand how much Jesus loves you, even though you were the enemy, you were the other, you're the guy in the ditch. You understand that and let it overflow, then this becomes possible. Then the fear is overcome because what am I afraid of giving up when God has given up heaven for me? And here, coming back to the beginning, remember Ramadan, here is where we are in completely different parts. I think it's great to help poor people no matter, you know, whether you're a Muslim or a Christian. But you've got to understand that Ramadan and helping the poor for Muslims is built into their entire system of merit. Ramadan is a system of merit as well. It's about working your way to salvation. Giving to the poor is ultimately also part of that scheme. Doing good to earn your merit before as well as compassion, it is actually, um, the, you know, feeling compassion, it's also part of the merit system. You see how different that is to the essence of Christianity? It is loving your neighbors, it is helping for the poor, but the motivation is so different. It's not merit, it's grace. It's because we've been loved so extravagantly that we want to love our neighbors as our, we love ourselves, even if that neighbor is somewhere in a third world country overseas let's pray get the band to come up and get ready to sing